Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. And I am Brian Brinkman. You are tuned into episode 22 of the Beyond the Pond podcast. This is the podcast in which Brian and myself use the music of Fish to introduce the listener to other non-jam bands we think that they might enjoy. Because we love Fish very much, we are Fish fans. But part of the problem with that is you listen to all this fish and you memorize all these shows and listen to fish exclusively and you may think that you're a stable genius when in fact you're just a myopic guy that isn't going to have anything to talk about at dinner parties when your wife has friends who don't like fish. They're not going to think of you as a genius. They're going to think of you as a moron. So we're trying to do something about that. Yeah, here's the thing. If you have to say you're a stable genius, it's like the same thing as saying you listen to music other than fish. Show us. Don't tell us. Exactly. Show me. Don't tell me. And we are here to help you show others. And we are here to help you go beyond the pond. So like Dave said, this is uh, episode 22. We're going to be talking about the recently wrapped up New Year's Eve run. And more specifically, we're going to focus on the ghost from December 29th. 2017. Uh, this was uh, a really unique and excellent jam from the run, a run that I might say had some of the strongest jams of the entire year, of one of the strongest years of fish. Um, really excited to dive into this, talk a little bit about the ghost, as well as play some of the song selections that we have for you. So some of the themes that we are going to explore in this episode include the wonders of tremolo and delay, Trey Anastasio as an over-eager Guitar Center customer, and cascading ear candy. And on that note, let's get to the fish. I feel I never told you the story. Right, so the 1229-2017 ghost. So why are we talking about this, especially in context? I mean, you all are aware of some fantastic jams on every night of uh, the New Year's Eve run here in 2017. Um, one of the reasons that we really plugged in here to talk about this ghost was this is a really excellent example of full band connect connectivity as well as Trey's use of his new effects board, something that he utilized throughout the entire run and really uh, here on this ghost is exemplified. At times towards the end of this jam, Trey sounded like he was turning a vacuum on and off and not so much in Electrolux like Fish uses, but this was like a mealy vacuum, something more modern, but certainly a vacuum. Yeah, I definitely heard that. Um, I mean, there's a lot going on here, and I think one of the things that we really were drawn to in this jam is, um, like David said, in terms of one of the themes that we're going to go over, there's really this, like, wall of cascading sound throughout it. It reminds me, in some cases, of the bathtub gin that you heard on um, uh, December 30th, 2015. Uh, kind of was reminiscent. Uh, I would say it's a distant cousin of the 720 2017 ghost from an effect standpoint and from just this wall of noise that the band creates. Yeah, 17 uh, or 14? 
excuse me, 7-20-2014 from Chicago. Um, really, the nice thing about this ghost is there's there's no true leader, and it's really symbolic of the overall plane on the 2017 New Year's Eve run. I mean, a lot of these jams featured... Uh, um, you know, a lot of inner band connectivity, inner band communication. Um, granted, and we'll talk about it, there was a lot of moments where um, Trey would lead the band into some sort of like a bliss peak. But some of the best moments of the New Year's Eve run, I think you'd agree with me, Dave, came when they were just connected and drove forward as one uh, one instrument, essentially. Yeah, and this is um, certainly, like we said, New Year's Eve 2017 is filled with quality jams. There's the No Man or No Man's Land, the uh, twist from the first night, Choctus, Torture's Put Open and Melt, Tweezer, Down with Disease. One of the only real detriments that could be noted about these jams is that there was uh, very much a reliance on major key, like Almond's, like Almond Brothers style, like bliss jamming. Yeah. And what's neat about this ghost is that it kind of stays in the full band uh, sonic wall of sound with some rhythmic bliss. It's a good example of how, uh, like Dickie Betts' worship need not always be necessary for a very interesting jam. While this ghost did go into C major, as uh, I think have several versions of ghosts since the commonly forgotten and very good locking version from August 2016. Great. This was uh, this was less about Trey leading the charge, and there's a good deal of uh, space between the instruments, and the musicians are clearly listening to one another. But uh, there is a lot of lots of uh, like of there is lots of the major key almond stuff this run. Like Choctaw's Torch was the A major jam, Got a Jabu had the B major jam, Down with Disease was in G major, Tweezer was in D, etc. But uh, certainly in this ghost, that's not what's going on. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the interesting about the the interesting thing about this ghost is um, Mike, I, I think we would agree, was the MVP of this run, and he really leads. Yeah, 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 and he was. Up a couple levels, uh, he just he sounded so full throughout this, and you know a jam that we'll talk about here in a second, like the steam. I, I feel like he makes that jam ultimately, um, but he uh, he takes Ghost, and it's not like three minutes and twelve seconds or something. It's like very early in the jam into a major key bliss section and takes it right out of uh, the, the you know the the original theme of Ghost. But the great thing is we're saying, regard, rather than go into a Almonds-style Bliss Peak Jam, the band goes into this very spacious, textural territory. And this, to me, is really proof of the reason why Fish should jam consistently and with purpose. Because, you know, while not every jam is going to ever connect, and some jams may sound repetitive and they may sound like... Um, three or four other jams and it may start to sound like there's a formula to what they're doing Um, when they're jamming regularly surprises happen and this ghost is a great great example of those surprises happen I would say the only the only detriment to this jam is that uh, it does get slightly ripcorded for backwards down the number line while this jam could have and probably should have continued for another four to five minutes we did get seven solid minutes out of it, and the band does manage to connect in a way that is representative of uh, the entire run's peaks. Yeah, I would agree with that. And we are no Numberline haters on this podcast. I think no. we're quite big fans of Numberline and 
have talked uh, uh, privately about exploring one or two of the number line jams on a future episode. Uh, I celebrate every version, but it came in probably three minutes earlier than it needed to. Uh, weird, weird song selection at that point. Um, so kind of looking big picture, talking about the run as a whole. Um, I mean, I think we would both agree this was a really, really excellent New Year's Eve run. Yeah, I think it was probably the strongest top to bottom since 2003. I would agree with that completely. Um, I think, you know, the big question that and I've seen this on Twitter and I've seen this kind of throughout the Internet uh, over, the, over the last couple of weeks so Fish played 17 shows at Madison Square Garden this year, which in and of itself is a pretty striking fact. Um, I, I just kind of thought about this, but I wonder I wonder the last time, the last year, that they played that many shows at a single venue. I've got to imagine it had to go back to the 80s when they were playing at Nectar's. I mean, is there any other year where they could have played this many shows in the same venue? I don't think so. Certainly... Nectars and the front. Right, right, right. It's it's pretty surprising because the residencies, I mean, they seem to fit this band so well. <laughs> you know, once they get settled, they're so, so tight and they're so loose at the same time. But, um, Dave, what do you think? Did Fish go 17 for 17 at MSG this year? Um, in a manner of speaking, yes. I would say... While the Baker's dozen shows vary in quality amongst themselves, not a single one of them can be labeled any less than very good. And any of them could really have like potentially been a highlight in like a random Midwest shed on a more conventional summer tour. The only really the only show in 2017 I outwardly did not like was Dick's Night 2. I yeah. found uh, the second set of the night to be very disjointed, somewhat lacking. Didn't love Night 3 of Dick's, thought it was okay. Both were, um, you know, they kind of paled to the sheer fire that was Dick's Night 1. But there wasn't any of the New Year's Run shows that I did not wholeheartedly like. And, you know, like you're saying, I think with the Baker's Dozen shows, you probably got between 10 and 12 of them were perfect. And maybe some slightly less so. It's it's an interesting thought because we've never really faced this with fish at least since I started listening to them and I'm guessing you know you go back into the mid 90s um, it's not like this idea of like did fish dominate a venue in one year is really a, a concept that we think a lot about um, I would say big picture yes um, my personal thought they played 12 near perfect shows. Um, at uh, at uh, um, MSG this year, twelve out of seventeen. That's really good, a really high batting average. Um, uh, I would say um, seven twenty two, seven twenty three, seven twenty five, twenty six, twenty eight, thirty, eight two, eight four, eight six, twelve twenty eight, twenty nine, and thirty. So, right there, some really really high quality shows. Um, and I would say that. Uh, um, you know, the ones I didn't list all have incredibly high highs and would spin of some of the best shows of any other year in 3.0 had they happened out of the context of the Baker's Dozen and the 17 shows at um, MSG. I the second would, set of... Uh, go ahead. I think it was the second set of Boston Creed Night was lacking. That reminded me the most of 9-2, uh, the second night of Dick's. And those yeah. two shows, I feel like... 
Both of those shows, what's interesting, they have very, very high energy and great uh, first sets. And the Boston Cream Show has an excellent ghost um, to kick off the second set, but then just goes into... Then they pick for it and it falls apart. Yeah, it's just like jukebox song selection, song selection that doesn't really flow together in any sort of meaningful way. Um, Nine two. What's interesting about that second set is, um, you know, when you look back on it, it's a a set filled with classics. but and even the encore, you've got uh, um, the lizards and antelope in the encore slot. Um, you've got a slave in there. You've got a Mike's groove. Um, it's 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 a very packed, heavy second set, song selection wise. But and I remember being there in the moment and listening to it back. It feels like you're putting just a random fish show on shuffle, and nothing feels like it flows together. Um, but I would take a further step, and I would say that. Even with those shows having the kind of lows that they had, their first sets do in some ways redeem them. If you flip those sets around, you probably look at that those shows quite differently. Mm. It could be argued that Fish didn't necessarily play a bad show all year. You know, there's no... Um, the, the kind of shows that showed up on uh, summer 2016 or even in parts of fall 2016 or fall 2014... You just don't see that here throughout this entire year, even on the slightly off nights like 714, 16, 721, 729, 81, 85, 92, I mean, these are the shows that you could argue are kind of the subpar shows. They all have really, really, really high highs that you just don't see in a bad show in a typical 3.0 year. It's funny. It's sort of to fishes and I guess Federal Donuts credit that I don't even think of those shows in terms of dates. I think of them in terms of donut flavors. Yeah, right? <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. You throw them at all these numbers and thinking, wait, is that Maple Night? Is that Jimmy's Night? Is that Strawberry Night? Like, Maple oh. Night is uh, interesting. August 1st, I um, have recently gone back and become slightly obsessed with that second set. Yeah. Got second set Maple Night. That's that's a sleeper. Oh, my That God. really that creeps up on you. The first set is all over the fucking place, but set two is... There were a couple of people right after that show who I remember specifically on Twitter um, talking uh, about the the golden age, and I think I listened to it once or twice and was like, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. I just don't hear it. And then I listened to it again, and I don't know if it was hindsight or context or you know just having a more open mind. I don't know what it was, but I heard it in a totally different way. That is some of the best Trey playing throughout the entire Baker's Dozen. He leads that jam in such a unique way, and it doesn't go down the uh, A major or B major, Allman-esque type of jamming that you would tend to hear when he takes over a jam. Bringing this back home to a bit of a larger discussion, Yeah, did the band sacrifice tightness and precision for unique set lists and an emphasis on like jamming throughout the year? I've read this uh, a lot on Twitter the last couple of weeks that the idea that, you know, Trey wasn't playing nearly as tight. They couldn't play compositions as tight. Um, and they, they haven't been nearly as precise. Uh, and there's just a lot of flaws in the playing. But in turn, you get these really unique set lists and um, an emphasis on jamming. You know, a lot, a lot of jamming throughout the year. Most, I think the highest ratio of 20-minute jams outside of 2003, I feel like I read uh, a couple days ago. Um, You know, for me, my first thought is 
isn't this the opposite of what Fish did from 2009 to 2012, where then they were trying to be so tight and so precise, and they overthought their set list, and they rarely jammed. You know, I would take this in a day. Um, To me, it doesn't really matter if the band can play as fast or precise as they did in the 90s. They are where they are right now age-wise. They have experience. I think that in some cases... Uh, not all, but in some cases, their jams can be more interesting now than they were during periods in the 90s. Um, I think that in some cases, they, especially this year, uh, thought through their shows in a very album-like way that there's a thematic approach to a lot of their shows that I personally like. A lot of these shows I want to listen to in full, or at least the sets in full. And that, to me, is... That's uh, preeminent to tightness and precision and nailing every note. I want to hear the energy. I want to hear a flow throughout a show that feels like a conceptual idea. And I want a good amount of jamming because I think that that's where Fish is at their absolute best. Uh, What say you? I'm essentially in the same boat. What I want the band to avoid is Coventry Glide-style meltdowns that are clearly due to something aside from Trey not being quite as nimble as he was at age 30. And that hasn't happened. Uh, Fish has a lot to think about on stage. I mean, Trey especially has to think about set construction, improvisation, some new equipment, a ridiculously discerning fan base. So <laughs> do I really, really give a fuck if Trey blows a few notes in a song like Fluffhead that he composed when he was 22 years old? No. Right. And is it, if it's really a trade-off between like precision and these really songy, meticulously crafted set lists like in 2010 versus a few flubs, but expansive jamming and unique set lists and, you know, go on and flood the shit or even every night for all I care. <laughs> I mean, the one exception it is might be the version of, uh, of the song brother on December 30th, which while it was certainly fun in the moment when I was like 22 ounces deep into a 24 ounce Pilsner from threes brewing at the show, Seen in the harsh light of day, it kind of sounds like a band that just didn't really know what the hell they were doing. Yeah. And while I applaud the risk-taking and that they clearly think very highly of their audience to indulge in that, it got a bit ugly. But, I mean, for me, the bottom line is I'll stop caring when Fish stops caring. But clearly, they still do, so I still do. They have new songs, and they play these songs. They have new gear, and they use it. It's not like the Rolling Stones putting out a new studio album knowing full well that these songs are never going to push Jumpin' Jack Flash out of the set list. And that's why Fish, to me, is not a legacy band. It's because they care. And although they may never play as fast as they were able to in 1997, for me, that's that's immaterial. As long as they keep providing us with set lists and expansive jamming and you know pushing things forward like they did in 2017. Yeah, I mean, this seems to me like part of the strategy for long-term survival for the band. You know, they seem to have found this really great medium, um, which is, you know, you got to believe this is the goal when they came back in 2009. Maybe not uh, fully contextualized uh, when they came back. I, I think in a lot of ways they just wanted to rebuild. But as they got going, this is what they were looking for, an opportunity to continue making unique and authentic music in a live setting, which they always did very well, and playing shows that every time they walked up the stage, I've got to believe that 
you know, 99.9% of the shows they walked off the stage from uh, this year, they they felt like they played the best music that they'd ever played. Right. It's going to be a really, really fantastic uh, sensation for a live band, especially as uh, they're midway through their third decade, as the members are in their mid-50s. Um, Let's bring it all back home and listen to The Ghost from December 29th, 2017.
right. Hope you guys enjoyed that segment from the uh, 1229-2017 Ghost. So what you heard there, what was so pleasing to your senses and your earlobes, was the cascading ear candy of fish. And uh, our first segment here is going to focus on a couple songs that really touch upon those themes. So these are supposed to make your ears feel like there's just ooey-gooey candy in there. It's just supposed to be really pleasing to all your senses. And uh, these are the kind of songs that just kind of make you smile in a very contemplative way while just kind of feeling like um, uh, there's just a lot of uh, happy vibes going around. So the first song that we're going to focus on is from a band that... um, Honestly, surprise took us this long to get to, but hey, you can't cover everyone, especially when you're covering the war on drugs. Drink. Drink. Um, this is Stereo Lab, and we're going to cover the song uh, Brackage off their album uh, Dots and Loops from 1997. So, Stereo Lab is a post rock uh, English and French band. They use uh, heavy use of vintage electronics and female vocals that are sung in English and French. They're very, very heavily influenced by 70s Krautrock, and the band infuses this sound with lounge, 60s pop, and experimental pop music, while their lyrics focus really heavily on socioeconomic themes, to the point that they've actually been uh, uh, criticized at times for what feels like overtly political lyrics. Um, Dots and Loops, the album that Brackage opens up, is their fifth album, and this is probably their most fully realized uh, record. Uh, This is built off of their most successful album, uh, sales-wise, Emperor Tomato Ketchup, and this is really a thematic, complete album uh, in the the truest sense. Um, As we said, Brackage is the opening track of the album. It really slowly grows over the first two minutes, and then multiple instruments start to enter the fold. You've got a xylophone, a trumpet, drums, bass, keys, until it really sounds like a shimmering late fall morning ride on the Metro. It's a really pleasing song, and it's a really just beautiful song to hear open up an album. And we think melodically, it really retains much of the same cascading wall of sound brilliance that made the ghost uh, from December 29, 1997 so enthralling. And once again, Fish, or at the very least Trey, is aware of Stereo Lab as um, he covered the song of theirs called called Noise of Carpet uh, from Emperor Tomato Ketchup at the May 21st, 1997 New York gig at Club Toast in Burlington, where him and his buddies, uh, they opted to become a garage band tribute to 90s alternative rock hits for that one night. That's the show where... They played Headache by Frank Black. They played My Bloody Valentine, Only Shallow. Uh, We may have actually touched upon it in the second episode of uh, Beyond the Pond way back when when we talked about shoegaze music. But it's a very strange night in fish history, and it was very, very loose. But if you like bands that mix genres with the plom for an irresistible psychedelic pop package... And if you're listening to a fish podcast, chances are you do like bands like that. You really have to get some had to get some stereo lab into your life as soon as possible. Also, um, I think Dots and Loops is the best album. It's also worth noting that um, I think about three quarters of it was produced by John McIntyre, who's the drummer for the Sea and Cake and Tortoise. Is an excellent producer in his own right. And in 1997, the Sea and Cake put out their record, The Fawn 
which was probably their most electronic influence album to date with lots of loops. And uh, he really used the knowledge that he took with the fawn and brought it to Stereo Lab, which is where you get a lot of the shimmering electronics, lots of very overlapping instruments. And John McIntyre also produced uh, Yola Tango's 2013 album, Fade, as well. A lot of... Mm-hmm. A lot of the vintage keyboards ended up on that record, which they recorded at uh, Soma Studios, also showed up on this album. But certainly, if you want to get in the Stereo Lab, I know they have a very excellent hits anthology, but this is probably the place to start with Dots and Loops. On that note, let's play Brackage by Stereo Lab. that uh, song by Stereo Lab at Snippet. So the next song we're going to talk about here is from one of my favorite bands that we have yet to talk about in this podcast. This would be Underworld. And the song we're going to feature is off their most recent album, and it's called Low Burn. So Underworld are a long-running, long-running British electronic dance duo consisting of Carl Hyde and Rick Smith. Hyde is thought of as the front man. He's the one who does the singing, on occasion some uh, some guitar playing. 
prancing about the stage like a proper frontman, whereas Rick Smith largely sequesters himself behind the large bank of computers that most electronic dance acts have. And um, while they've existed in some format in the mid-80s as an electropop act, what the general public thinks of as being underworld really probably came into being around 1992. And in 1994, they added a third member, a younger DJ named Darren Emerson, and then they released their classic debut dub no bass with my head man which i believe is flawless and would recommend extremely highly and to call underworld simply an electronic dance act kind of sells them a bit short while they certainly do provide the pounding rhythms designed for the dance floor their forays into psychedelia and pop music really do place them far above their peers as well as the fact that they've been Steadily active since 1994. I think uh, I think putting out what I believe to be seven excellent studio albums in that time, in addition to many singles, frequent live shows, soundtracks, and they collaborated with the English director Danny Boyle on the music to the 2012 Olympic Games. If you remember, Danny Boyle was responsible for uh, the opening and closing ceremonies. And the relationship with Danny Boyle probably has a lot to do with the fact that Many Americans were first introduced to Underworld via the movie Train Spotting and its two soundtrack albums. The, uh, the, the sinister jam that's playing in uh, the climactic scene where Mark Renton is going through heroin withdrawal, that's Underworld's song Dark and Long, the Dark Train remix. And if you really want to see a field full of British people completely lose their shit, Go to a big British music festival like Glastonbury or Tea in the Park and watch what happens when Underworld plays the song Born Slippy Nooks. That's their big anthem that plays over the train spot credits. Probably their best known song. But the one we have here is the third song off uh, their excellent 2016 album called Barbara Barbara. We face a shining face a shining future uh the song low burn actually bears a little resemblance to uh, bruce springsteen's i'm on fire and is a mellow psychedelic dance gem and while it doesn't exactly resemble the ghost in sound it absolutely does in spirit and we think you will enjoy it very much and i would say if you want the best introduction to underworld where all of their albums are fantastic i'd actually recommend the compilation called 1992 to 2012 it contains all the hits plus uh, some very key b-sides and i've seen them three times and i think it was probably three of the greatest live electronic dance shows i've ever seen and i know that their live show kind of comes off as slightly less canned uh, than other live shows it's just anthem after anthem after anthem everyone who's seeing an underworld show in the states doesn't get there by accident they know all the words they're thrilled to be there, and I really think it's a band worth getting into, and you can go pretty deep on them. I would say just to kind of follow up all this, um, uh, Carl Hyde put out a record, or a couple records with Brian Eno, um, one recently in 2014 called High Life that was one of my favorite records of that year, and I would highly recommend it. That album at times sounds like classic 70s Eno, um, particularly the opening track, and then at times it sounds like Talking Heads, uh, really just kind of messed up dance party. It's it's an excellent, excellent record. 
think it's only about six or seven tracks. Uh, so it's super accessible, super listenable. You can find it on Spotify. Uh, and it's, it goes as uh, Eno and Hyde High Life. And just really great, um, great kind of example of what both of those guys bring to the table from an electronic, from an instrumental, from an ambient and like wall of sound uh, kind of, you know, the cascading ear candy that we're talking about here. So on that note, let's listen to Low Burn by Underworld. take a quick break here talk about new albums it is a new year which means we've got new albums we hope that you guys have enjoyed our episode uh counting down our favorite records of 2017 and here we are starting anew it's kind of the best thing about a uh, a new year is the slate is clean on records and uh already in the short time that 2018 has existed we uh have both discovered a couple albums that have really moved us uh my album that i'm going to talk about is um I think this was probably the first album released in the entirety of 2018. Uh, this was Jeff Rose- Rosenstock's album, Post, which uh, came out surprisingly in the early hours of New Year's Day and uh, was all the rage uh, throughout the indie rock uh, Twitter sphere, and rightly so. Um, this is his second full studio album, um, and this was... Yeah, it has to be noted he played a late night New Year's Eve set in Philadelphia uh, um, that night, and then released the record the following morning. Which is just you, you've got to imagine if this was not a surprised uh, move, this was just like made out of okay, one year's ended, next year's beginning. Let's just get it started with an album out there. Um, so this record was uh, written in the Catskills shortly after the 2016 election. And thematically, it's really about uh, the idea of losing hope in your country and yourself and those around you. Uh, notably as well, 10% of the album's proceeds are being donated to Puerto Rican Relief. So um, don't just listen to this album on Spotify. If you um, if you go on and you hear uh, a, a couple songs that you like, especially the song I'm going to talk about here in a second, go out and buy this record. It's uh, going for a good cause, and um, 
you know, a, a, a salt of the earth musician like this to be given away um, or donating money like this uh, for a really good cause is a really notable thing in 2018. Um, so the song that really opens the record is called USA. And uh, this is my favorite song of 2018 uh, as of right now. Uh, it's going to take a lot to pass it up. It's a seven-minute um, multifaceted punk rock song. It's the song for 2018 America. Um, this sounds in a lot of ways like it could have come off of uh, The Monitor from uh, Titus Andronicus from 2010. Mm. And uh, there's a lyric in there that the, the, the chorus kind of shifts a little bit throughout, but the lyric, I won't hate you. I just need to know. Please be honest. Tell me, was it a joke? Uh, summarizes really everything that uh, those of us worry about when we confront those in our lives who we know voted for the current president of the United States. Was this a joke? Was this you? Did you do this? Did you do it out of a joke? What What the fuck happened? Why did we get to this point? Um, so USA is really the clear... Uh, it's, it's the opener of this album, and it really ushers the album in at a very, very high level. There's no slow burn to this album at all. Um, but beyond there, it holds up with songs like All This Useless Energy, Beating My Head Against the Wall, uh, 9 Out of 10, uh, Your Throat, uh, TV Stars. I mean, and, and, and two of those uh, songs, 9 Out of 10 and uh, TV Stars, are very slow, uh, patient, uh, but really well-written lyrically songs. But the rest are catchy as hell, um, and they're incredibly sincere. And if you listen to our top albums list, you heard me talk about an album by a band named Gang of Youths, which... Um, they write some pretty catchy, pretty uh, uh, incredible melodies for their songs and incredibly sincere songs that really gets me going at this point in my life. Um, you know, what's what's interesting for me, it usually takes me a few weeks for an album to bowl me over in a given year. Um, and Dave and I were talking before we, we went to air. There's... Um, uh, lists of, of albums that are coming out here in the next few weeks. And, you know, just as we speak right now, there's only a few records I'm really excited for. So I'm feeling like I'm going to get pretty surprised here in the first quarter of 2018. Um, but this album completely bowled me over. I drove to work on January 2nd, listened to this, and was just completely devastated. Um, you know, perhaps I would say the hardest part about listening to this record is just based on the low point that we're currently at society, uh, from a societal standpoint. It's unclear if we're going to be able to escape the sort of crestfallen nature of these lyrics. Um, but in many ways, this sounds like uh, what relapsing after Watergate should really feel like. This is just... Um, there's a lot of negativity, but there's also some hope in this album. And uh, one of the lyrics uh, that, that really gets me from the song USA is this building chorus of we're tired, we're bored. And you can really take this on two angles. Um, in some sense, you could look at the youth of America and and you know, the sensation that you're, uh, we're tired, we're bored of everything that's happening, of years and years of um, kind of built up. Uh, animosity towards the the elites in the country. But in a sense, I really take it as this is just what America feels like right now. It's a tired, bored country that's out of ideas, and that's why we put ourselves in the position that we did of voting for someone as uh, painfully awful and uh, filled with negativity and just filled with zero, zero ideas or insight, and quite frankly, a complete loser as the president we have. So... 
Tell us how you really feel, Brian. <laughs> Jeff Rosen. I'm right there with you. Don't worry. <laughs> Jeff Rosen. Sorry to get on my high horse, but this album got me so fired up and hit everything that I really am feeling right now. So Jeff Rosenstock's post. Go out, buy this album. Goes for a good cause. Um, punk rock is is pretty fucking amazing sometimes. It's fine. The first time I heard we're tired, we're bored, I thought they were saying we're tired, we're poor. Sort of like with the Statue of Liberty, bring me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you can but it, uh, play around. It works both ways. ways. Well. Yeah. What do you got for us? Um, well, first of all, that Jeff Rosenstock album is fantastic. I, uh, you will certainly get no argument from me. I listened uh, to that on the subway this morning going to court. It was pretty great experiment. Um, the album I have... Something far more downbeat, but uh, no less good, I think, is the latest album by a guy named Jeremy Enoch, and the album is called Ghosts. Uh, Jeremy Enoch is best known as the front man for uh, the 1990s, 1990s emo rock pioneer Sunny Day Real Estate. Uh, they haven't been active since the mid-2000s. There was uh, like a reunion gig here or there. I think they... Went into the studio to try to make a reunion record. Wasn't happening. They scrapped it. Uh, they're not active as of right now. And uh, the one time I saw Sunday Day Real Estate Live was in 2000. The New York Mets beat the St. Louis Cardinals to advance the World Series that night. And I actually saw that show in a venue that no longer exists. It was the, uh, the Old Bridge Night, the Birch Hill Nightclub in Old Bridge, New Jersey. Which, in addition to a nightclub, it's got batting cages and bumper boats. It was next to a bar called Stingrays. It was sketchy as hell. But the show was great. And Jeremy Enoch has put out a handful of albums under both his own name and under the fire theft. And I actually became a huge fan of Sunday Day Real Estate after becoming enraptured with their 1998 album, How It Feels to Be Something On which I probably played three times a day every day of my junior year of college. And I think that uh, he was kind of in the wilderness for a while. You know, the last Sunny Day Real Estate album, The Rising Tide, despite being a very bombastic rock album, was still pretty damn good. But after that, he, he like I said, he put out a few solo records, The Fire Theft, nothing really clicked. He was kind of a bit in the wilderness. And I really think that Ghosts is probably the man's best work since How It Feels With Something On. And yet, I hadn't even realized it was out until I saw a few articles uh, from Sunday real estate fans who didn't realize it was out either. And his last album before this came out eight years ago. And it really just has a stub of an entry on the All Music Guide. I think it was even crowdfunded. But... What Ghost features is orchestrated, soothing rock balladry. It has its closest relation in a 1996 solo album he put out on Sub Pop called Return of the Frog Queen. And on this album, the drums, they sound like timpani drums. The guitars are largely acoustic. I'm not sure if he played everything or had a backing band, but the production and the arrangements are just immaculate. And his vocals have always been a bit of a love-hated proposition, but really... If you're interested in languid, orchestrated pop songs, the great eye for detail, I would certainly check this out. 
I mean, if you just kind of forgot about him after Sunday real estate and wondering what he's been up to, this is a great way to check in. But, you know, he can be proud of the fact that his first album under his own name in eight years is very good. And I uh, hope it pretends good things to come. I hope he tours and I uh, hope he gets some semblance of a push behind this album. Okay, so we're going to get to the uh, the second segment we have here entitled The Wonders of Tremolo and Delay. So Brian and myself, we do not pretend to be guitar tech nerds. However, I know what my amp sounds like when I turn the tremolo knob way up. And technically, I think the tremolo is an effect built into some effects pedals and guitar amps, which creates a variation in amplitude to produce a shuddering or underwater effect. It's a modulation effect that causes a change in volume. And the reason that we bring this up is that it was written at length that Trey had a a brand new rig built from the ground up for uh, this holiday run. And man, oh man, did he go heavy on the tremolo effects. He was the dude in Guitar Center that's just hours sitting down going crazy, and the salesman's got to come over and say, son, you either have to buy it or stop playing it because you're just pissing off the customers at this point. And, um... What we're going to do here, uh, before discussing some rock songs that use tremolo, is actually string together a few bits from the holiday shows where Trey put it together to a really extreme degree in creating some sounds that just sounds like whirly gigs, like type sounds. Example of uh, the tremolo effect at its strongest. He also used lots of delay to get almost like the echoplex effects that he couldn't get enough of in 2013. But certainly at some points, it almost got to be a bit too much. I would say the version of Down with Disease, I would classify it as Down with Disease into Trey going off at Guitar Center Jam into G Major Almond Brothers Bliss. So we're just going to give you a quick few examples here. And then we're going to go into some actual songs that use this effect. Thank you. 
All right, so kicking off our second segment here on the Wonders of Tremolo and Delay, we're going to focus on a band that we talked about in episode 13, though in quite a different way here. This is R.E.M. We're going to talk about a song off of their ninth album, Monster. The song is the second track on that record called Crush With Eyeliner. Uh, Monster of note, this is the first album that I bought on CD at age nine. Family was at Best Buy. My parents bought me a boombox with a CD player attached to it. And I said I wanted to buy a record. They said that you could buy one CD. I listened to a sample of What's the Frequency, Kenneth? And I said, I want to buy that album. And my dad said, that's kind of cool. Why do you want to buy an R.E.M.'s album? And I said, I don't know. I just do. Um, (laughs) So... um, it's probably one of the few CD copies of Monster that has not ended up in a used bin. <laughs> Monster's a great album, but for some reason, I think it was probably because it was at the height of CD manufacturing. Yeah. That album is in every cutout bin in the country. Everyone. I've seen it so many different places. You're totally right. Um, so this record, after the immense success of Out of Time, that had Losing My Religion and Automatic for the People, uh, that had Man on the Moon, two of their biggest singles, these were two of their biggest albums, uh, the band reconvened to really intentionally write a heavier record, um, Out of Time and especially Automatic for the People, um, a record that just celebrated its 25th anniversary and... Um, I have to note, uh, one of the benefits of this podcast is I think Dave and I have both turned each other on to past albums that have meant a lot to us that uh, we, neither one of us had ever really dove into or dived into. Um, Dave had me listen to Automatic for the People over the summer and it completely blew my mind. I listen to that record all the time now and I implore all of you to hear it if you haven't in in quite some time. But anyway, getting to Monster. So they want to write a heavier record. His record really contrasts the previous two albums and touches on 70s glam rock. And lyrically, there's a lot of focus on celebrity. And the album is filled with distorted guitars. This is a very live-sounding album. Uh, At the point of recording this, R.E.M. hadn't toured in six years. And they were planning on doing a big tour after this record came out. So they recorded a lot of the album live in the studio and set up as though they were playing live to really mimic the sensation and help them prepare for their live uh, shows. Um, Peter Buck's guitar throughout the record features a heavy use of tremolo pedal, and it's really exemplified by this song. Uh, If you are unfamiliar with what the tremolo does, just listen to the intro of this song. That kind of that's the tremolo that really comes in kind of breaks up the melody uh, uh, throughout and adds a really cool rhythmic aspect to the guitar. Um, Much of the lyrics uh, to the overall album were written in character as Stipe sought to personify fans obsessed with the band as well as characters who had been destroyed in part by fame. In a lot of ways, you could equate this to what Bono was doing in U2, in Octoon Baby, and Zoropra, in creating these kind of characters of celebrities to really show the uh, the downfalls and the pitfalls of, pain, of uh, fame. But um, more personally, for Stipe, this, was, this album was recorded at a time when he lost two of his best friends, um, River Phoenix and Kurt Cobain, and... Uh, um, uh, 
because of you know these tragedies and uh, which which really dot a lot of these songs. The the song that we're actually gonna we're actually playing here, "Crush with Eyeliner," um, was the first song Stipe wrote following Phoenix's death, and uh, he found himself you know going to funerals and he found himself um, in a bit of depression writing these songs. This was. Uh, uh, one of the first times the band ever found themselves behind schedule in terms of recording. Um, so it's kind of, it's, 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 it's a really interesting album in the sense that it, um, showcases the band at a point of transition. And in a lot of ways, REM would never really be the same after a record like this. Um, but it's also, I don't know if I'd call it a return to form in a lot of ways. It does touch on like the rock and roll, uh, you know, the heavier sound of the band in the eighties, but in a really new kind of postmodern type of way. Um, so let's go ahead. Let's listen to crush with eyeliner and especially, you know, just be thinking about the tremolo that's throughout this song and, uh, kind of what Trey was playing, uh, uh, throughout the new year's run and the similarities with that. of two songs by the band Mission of Burma. I know that we discussed Mission of Burma at length in our episode featuring uh, the Canada, New Jersey Sense and Subtle Sounds episode, though I sort of forget in what context. Brian, what was that? Was that like... We were talking about discordant live runs. We were, oh, of course, of course. We were right. referring to uh, Fish 2.0. Right, discordant live runs. So we played songs off the 1985 live album. Right, okay. Won't belabor the point too much here. Mission to Burma are a Boston post-punk band that only initially released one full-length album and an EP before they disbanded in 1985. And the album that they put out in 1982 was Versus, just like the Pearl Jam album. Their guitarist, Roger Miller, loved himself some tremolo effects. They're absolutely everywhere on verses in both more mellow form on uh, the sinister song Trem 2 to the more extreme breakdown in Weatherbox to create the whirly gig effect that one Trey Anastasio could not get enough of. I I was at uh, the 29th and 30th, and whenever he did the effect that you will hear in Weatherbox, I just said out loud, Oh! Chase and listen to Mission to Burma. 
Awesome. Him and I have something in common. So I would say Versus, that's one of my favorite albums of all time. You get these gnarly post-punk bass lines, very intelligent lyrics, and punk rock energy that will just wreck your eardrums like they wreck Roger Miller's, uh, because his tinnitus is why the band in- initially broke up. They did, after going on a hiatus for a very long time, they got back together in 2002, their last full-length album came out in 2012. It was called Unsound. And I actually just read an interview with Roger Miller from 2015 saying that um, he did a European tour for Unsound and came back, and his tinnitus really kind of creeped up again to the point where they may never tour ever again, which is too bad. But, you know, he's you got to protect the ears. And I would say nearly every song on Versus uses heavy levels of tremolo and delay to some extent. And while Roger Miller is perfectly capable of playing like a quote-unquote normal guitarist, and he does so to an extent in the more straight-ahead punk rock songs, he really viewed the guitar as a tool and was reportedly a huge influence on Rage Against the Machine's Tom Morello. So we are going to uh, hear some examples of the tremolo in snippets of the song Trem 2 and Weatherbox off of Mishnah Burma's verses. Hope you guys enjoyed that stuff from Mission of Burma, and um, we've got a bonus track for you here. Um, kind of debated if we were gonna uh, play this song, but you know what the hell? We're gonna do a, a Radiohead song here. We are known Radiohead fans here at uh, uh, Beyond the Pond. We've been talking about this for months. We're gonna make it happen, I promise you. And sometime here in early to mid 2018, we're gonna do a uh, Radiohead deep dive. Um, just need to sit down and write it out, um, but it will be coming here. We're going to play uh, the song Bones off of the Benz. Uh, really, really fantastic record that, or really, really fantastic song off of a fantastic record that you can just never talk about too much. Yeah, this is the fifth song on the Benz. 
We love the Benz. Radiohead guitarist Johnny Greenwood loves himself some crazy tremolo effects in this song. This is our podcast. We're going to play Radiohead. You're going to like it. Need we say more? songs that we've played here throughout the episode. So in section one, we focused uh, heavily on uh, the cascading ear candy and really the thematic uh, sensation of the uh, 1229-2017 Ghost. We started with Stereo Labs uh, Brackage off of 1997's Dots and Loops. Next record that we, uh, our next band we focused on was Underworld. We uh, took the song Low Burn off of their 2016 album. Um, 2016 album, Barbara Barbara, We Face a Shining Future. Uh, in our second segment, we talked about tremolo and delay, focusing on the effects that Trey used quite heavily throughout the 2017 New Year's Eve run. And we started with R.E.M.'s Crush with Eyeliner off of Monster. We uh, jumped then into Mission of Burma's Trem 2, as well as Weatherbox. Um, and then we jumped into Radiohead, uh, like I noted, Bones off of the Benz. So just a reminder, we are on social media. On Twitter, at underscore Beyond the Pond. We have a Medium page, medium.com slash Beyond the Pond. And on Spotify... We have a large master list of uh, the songs that we have featured in the show. It's uh, under Beyond the Pond podcast songs. It's now that it's 2018. We actually, what we might do is just leave the uh, current Spotify playlist as it is and then start a 2018 Spotify playlist so as to not completely overwhelm you with songs. But we'll see. And uh, as you guys well know by now, our publishing structure is uh, pretty straightforward. We publish an episode every other Tuesday. Tuesdays, as you all know, have absolutely no feel. Nothing's changed with that here in 2018. Uh, So we want to give you guys some good music to deep dive on, talk about some fish, uh, talk about some uh, new bands, discover some new records. So that's our purpose that's what we're here for uh we've got some great records coming up or uh, excuse me some great episodes (laughs) some great episodes coming up as of this time of recording we are preparing for 
perhaps our biggest interview ever. Um, and so we're quite mm. stoked about that. That episode should drop in late January, early February, depending on how everything goes. Um, we are quite excited. Keep that a surprise for you guys. But then um, we're in the works on a couple other episodes. We've got probably four or five in the works right now for the winter into the spring. Um, a lot of really diverse topics Uh some great fish jams that we want to still focus on as well as uh kind of um splintering off and uh talking a little bit about some bands that we really care about some styles of music that we're super into yeah there's going to be some very interesting guests coming up on beyond the pond because listeners cannot live on brian and dave alone much like you can't live on fish alone it's always (laughs) good to get a uh a third or fourth third or fourth voice up here in the virtual studio as it were absolutely absolutely and on that note i'm david goldstein i am brian brinkman and if you listen to this point thank you very much it's going to be an exciting 2018 and we are fully looking forward to having you come join us as we go beyond the pond.